Hello, and welcome back to another edition of EdChoice Chats. This is Mike McShane, Director of National Research at EdChoice, and it is my great privilege today to talk on the podcast with Dr. Susan Pendergrass. She is the Director of Education Policy at the Show Me Institute. She's a longtime friend of EdChoice, a brilliant scholar, a wonderful writer, a great conversationalist, And we will be talking about a new paper she has out with us at EdChoice. It's entitled Breaking Down Public School District Lines, Policies, Perceptions, and Implications of Inter-District Open Enrollment. If you all have been hearing about open enrollment, I know it's on offer in lots of states right now that they're debating these programs, or your state might be one of the states that already offers some kind of enrollment across district lines. There's a lot of, of sort of bends and weaves in the, in the story here because these programs look differently in different states. And luckily, Susan will sort me out on all of the questions that I have about this that some of you may have as well. But you may be in a state that is debating this currently or currently has it. And if you've ever had any questions about it, our conversation today and Susan's paper could definitely help answer them. So without further ado, Here's my conversation with Susan Pendergrass about her new paper with EdChoice on open enrollment in American public schools. So Susan, this term open enrollment, I have found when I Google it, it almost inevitably tries to get me to enroll in healthcare. Um, yes, it does. It's a mixed, it's sort of like something happened with like education savings accounts, a similar term where they've meant something else in, in different places. So for people that are interested in open enrollment in the way that you're talking about it in your paper, what is open enrollment? What are open enrollment policies? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we have gotten into decades ago, 100 years ago, let's say, began to be the case that as communities put together their public schools, they had to begin to demarcate who's part of their district and who's not part of their district. At one point, 100 years ago, we had 100,000 school districts and each had about a school or two, pretty small. And towards the sort of like the middle of the last century, we consolidated a bunch of those because they weren't really, I mean, they were districts, but they kind of were just schools. And we created these school districts, which made sense at the time during the sort of progressive movements of when they're building Model T Fords, it kind of made sense. Like, let's get it all under one roof and we'll have a superintendent and we'll administer this thing and and we'll be able to offer more classes and we'll make it uh, a district and you draw lines around it and pay your property taxes to your local school district. And that's how they're funded. Well, that's changed so much. It started changing, honestly, with Brown versus Board of Education started changing when it became clear that some districts had a ton of property wealth and some had hardly any property wealth. And so it became like, well, this isn't really fair because some school districts are poor and can't raise much money and they have terrible educational offerings and buildings and everything. And then some are really wealthy and they're basically like expensive private schools. And so we've been trying, we collectively, the federal government and all state governments have been like, we'll be the ones that will sort of even this out and we'll create funding formulas, and we'll try to take money from this one and give it to this one. And we will, from above, sort of like try to right the ship and make it more fair for everybody. And what's really emerged in 1990-ish, so let's say 35 years ago, 89 in Minnesota, is, hey, what if instead of us trying to equalize the resources, we just let people go to the school that they choose? And these district lines that got created and sort of really hardwired into the system become less meaningful because 
where you live, you know, there's going to be a certain number of schools within a radius of what you feel is acceptable distance to travel for your child to go to school. You're going to have a certain number of schools in there and you ought to be able to just pick any of them. So Minnesota did this 35 years ago. They're like, you can take your state funding, pick a school in your school district or pick a school out of your school district. And uh, at this point, 43 43 other states have followed suit. And in 20 some, it is mandatory, which means that districts have to accept transfer students and they have to let kids leave. So the states where it's not mandatory, where it's voluntary, it's kind of iffy because you run into situations where the wealthier districts are like, we're not going to take kids. We can't stop kids from leaving. We won't take it. So now you have open enrollment. And so in Wisconsin, you've got some 80,000 kids choosing it. I think it ends up Minnesota. You get to sort of like a 10 percent sort of critical mass of kids who, you know, which is to say 90% of kids are still going to go to their neighborhood school. It's sort of how we are used to operating with our kids is you either move to the neighborhood that you want to for the school, or you fall in love with your neighborhood school, or your child goes to the school you went to. So most kids are still going to their neighborhood school, but you have this 10% or so that are willing to make some sacrifice through transportation or something to pick a different school. So it's called open enrollment, which just means we open up the district borders, we open up those lines around the schools, and we let people pick rather than being assigned. That's great. So you, one of the questions I really wanted to ask you was how these policies vary across states. And you mentioned a couple of them there that I think would be interesting to kind of dive into. So one of them is around this idea of requiring districts to allow students to to come in and leave. So is that like a blanket requirement? Is it that districts have to say anybody who wants to come in can come in? Or is it saying, you know, we have X number of seats available? Like, how exactly does it work? That is it is it truly sort of open borders? Or is it like, sort of porous, but with some limits on it? Like, how does that work? So sort of porous is the answer. And in every case, a district can say, oh, no, we don't have enough seats available. So we can't take kids in that grade in that school or in that program in that school. And in the best cases, like Arizona, districts post for each school grade and program how many open seats they have, and they update it quarterly so that if they say ahead of time, we have 10 fourth grade seats in this highly coveted elementary school, then may the best man would know it's like a, a you know first come, first serve, and then a wait list. But in the worst version of that, somebody applies for a fourth grade seat and they go, oh, we don't have any fourth grade seats. So the way it should happen is that they post ahead of time how many open seats they have in each school grade and program. And by program, I include disability programs or programs specialized like magnet programs for the arts or the sciences or something like that. You have to post them ahead of time so that parents know that there's an opening that they can apply for. And so what you see in the voluntary states is, okay, well, what we know, you haven't asked this question, but parents tend to pick a higher performing school over a lower performing school. So you're in a low performing school district. You can't move or you don't want to move for any number of reasons. You're going to pick a higher performing school district. And in those cases, what we've seen, and I think it's more like as these programs initially roll out before folks in the system sort of become accustomed to the new set of rules is they don't want to bring in the lower performing kids and have them affect their test scores, right? It's like, that's going to water down because I think that there's not confidence that their programs are so outstanding that every child will do well there. It's like, well, I don't know, we've got this nice group of kids. We've got great test scores. We're not sure. We just want to open up our borders to anybody coming in. And you do see that there's kind of a 
well-known graphic of Ohio where you see the higher performing urban districts do not let in kids from the lower performing surrounding areas. So it is not really with fidelity when you have an open enrollment program where districts can opt out. But again, about half the states in the country is mandatory. They have to let kids come in and let kids go out. And I think we're seeing growth in it. And I also think that as the charter school sector has grown, as private school choice programs have grown, especially in the last couple of years, we have now four states that are just letting parents pick any school, essentially, Arizona, West Virginia, Utah, and Iowa, and a couple more that could happen this year. And as more parents are like second generation school choosers, I think that the idea has really, you know, is no longer controversial. It's accepted in lots of places and it's just part of the landscape in many states. So how does the money work? So like, does that child bring funding with them? Is it the same amount that they otherwise would have in that district? You mentioned maybe some of these districts that have higher property taxes. And so they're funded at a higher level. Do they get their like sending districts property taxes? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So there's lots of different ways that it can work. And there's, you know, multiple forms of this policy across the country. But generally speaking, these foundation formulas have some component based on enrollment or attendance. And so if you're counted over here at your assigned public school, but then you choose to go over here, you become counted in the enrollment over here. And then whatever your state's formula is, foundation formula, then you become part of the foundation formula for the new district. So you bring with you kind of your state funding, and it's based on your new district rather than your old district. That's kind of the less than ideal one, because if you think about it, wealthy districts probably get less money per student from the state because they're more locally funded. So it makes these kids less attractive. And so they they don't want to, there's no, there's an incentive not to take them. Now, Wisconsin has a really interesting system whereby they just fund open enrollment kids separately. And the legislature picks a dollar amount. It's around $8,200. And if you're in the open enrollment program, you bring $8,200 with you, regardless of where you came from or where you went to or where you go to. And then there's multipliers for students with disabilities. And you know, they're, if you're a more expensive student, then it can be more money than that. But they just carve them out of the system completely, which I think is the ideal because number one, Wisconsin also does a good job of kind of tracking kids and where they are assigned to and where they chose to go and how many applications are being received, how many are being refused, how many are being accepted. They have a really good data tracker. And then the funding for it is just a lot simpler. It's just clean. It's like you have your open enrollment dollar amount and every district knows that that's what those kids bring with them. And it's higher than the state-based funding. So there's a little bit of an incentive to accept kids. Yeah, because that seems to me one of the challenges that could arise is this sort of adverse selection problem, right? I think of it like, you know, in health insurance or whatever. Health insurance companies want younger, healthier people that are going to pay their premiums but not extract, you know, anything in in payouts and want to sort of avoid people who have expensive health conditions but don't pay as much in premium. So so it seems like one way around is to just like require it and say, even if you're not getting money from these kids, doesn't matter, you have to take them. But that seems like a, a, a not the not the nicest negotiation taking place between two parties. It sounds like in other places there are ways to do it just on the financial side. I mean, those kids could move into the district, right? They could yeah. move into the district and rent and not pay property tax. I mean, there's you know the idea. I see this with private school choice programs too. It's like they they leave and take the money. I'm like, well, they kids move states all the time. Kids right. move districts. They move out of state. 
move out of the country. Kids move around all the time and they come and they go. And so for some reason, if they go or if they come in from another district, it, they there's a tendency to want to treat those children differently when in fact they could rent an apartment in your district and you would get no property taxes and there they would be and you would be responsible for them. So I think that what you see in states and, and you know, this paper that's coming out, there's sort of in-depth looks at four states in a state like Arizona, which has had open enrollment for a long time and all kinds of other choice. I mean, it's a very, very open system in Arizona now, the wild west of school choice. You see the supply side respond. So Phoenix has opened a school with a really cool bioscience program in order to attract kids from out of the district. You also see in rural areas, districts with declining enrollment, it's iffy as to whether they're going to be able to keep their school open or continue to have a high school. If you have open enrollment, they can pull from other districts and it can be like a shot in the arm for districts that sort of lean into it rather than leaning away from it. And also in states with open enrollment, Ohio is an example of this. You can have consortia of small school districts where they're like, okay, well, we can't be everything to everyone. But we could be the ag program and this could be the STEM program and this could be the arts program. And then you kind of can stick with your base school. I mean, there's lots of ways around this where what you're doing is creating opportunities for families to have more options. And then you're allowing the schools to specialize and improve and serve students better. The current system is you draw a circle around the school. That's your catchment zone. Everyone who lives in there has to go there. And that school has to pretend to serve each and every kid who happens to live within that circle to the you know best degree that they could be served and we know that doesn't work right so no that's one of those things i was i was thinking things that as i was reading your paper that made me think and one of them was this kind of idea of like well it seems kind of nuts to expect every school to be everything for everyone and instead having some sort of system where Schools can offer different things. They can emphasize different things. They can teach in different teach different things in different ways. All of those things, and allowing people to find one, just because it's a Herculean task to say, "Yep, no, everybody that lives in here, you've got to be the right choice for them." Seems like a wild idea to me. That's right, and uh, you know, you can go through the list of things, and I, I often do, but the school might be too big or too small. I mean, I've you talk to people when they look at colleges, they're like, oh, they have to go to a small school, or they have to go to a big school. Like we have these ideas of what we have to have in college. It could be too big, too small. You know, sometimes kids get on the wrong side of teachers, and they just feel like they can't get out from under it. That could be a reason. Sometimes they're bullied by kids. That could be a reason. Sometimes if you have an IEP, your school may not be able to. I mean. Imagine you're a small rural high school and a student shows up with a disability that you haven't served before, like a blind student. Now you have to hire staff. You have to invest resources. You know, does that make sense to try to retrofit the school to take care of every possible child's situation? Or should we let the kids move around, right, so that the schools could um, specialize a little bit? And I think that's exactly what you see in these open enrollment programs. And also, like I said in the beginning, these are the unhappy kids. These are the kids for whom the school is not working. I don't think when you open up open enrollment, there's there's this fear. We're talking about open enrollment in Missouri. So all the fears are sort of being put out there. There's this fear that everyone's just going to go, great, I'm going to move schools. <laughs> you know, fantastic. I'm going to look down the list and pick a school. That is not what happens. You, you do have to invest a little bit of effort. You do have to figure out the transportation piece. 
your kids will not go to school with the kids in the neighborhood. And that's a cost for some folks. You know what I mean? They may not go to school then with the kids in their Girl Scout troop or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like not everybody is up for that. If these are the people who are like, this is worth the cost to me because I really want this benefit because where my child is going to school right now is not a good fit. I just don't think you see people sampling sampling schools and moving around for the sake of moving around. Another thing your paper made me think of was about this kind of role of school districts in general, because it seems to me like when you're describing all these policies, states have to build this kind of like Rube Goldberg device, right? Of like, well, we still have the property tax funding, but then we got to count the kids and we got to, we'll do a sending and a receiving and whatever. I mean, in some ways, does this make, does this make you think about the future or the present as it may be of school districts? As you mentioned, I think quite correctly, they sort of appeared at a particular point in time to solve a particular problem that existed, you know, when, when they were created. Have they outlived their usefulness? Is that like a bridge too far? And it's more like we, we don't need to go that far or whatever. I just, as you survey all of these things, like what do you think about just like the role of school districts? Yeah, I think they were beginning to outserve their usefulness. The federal government does a national household education survey every couple of years. And they ask people, does your child attend an assigned public school, a chosen public school, a private school or homeschool? An amazing percentage get it wrong, which is fine. But, uh, you know, they ask these folks these questions. And then there's a follow up question of did you move to the neighborhood you live in because of your school? So they're trying to get at that. Well, the percentage of parents who report their children attend the assigned public school is it was in the 90 percentiles up there. And now it's like 67, 68. It's like two thirds. So you're already, I think we're seeing sort of this very slow moving change where people are more expecting to pick a school than to be assigned to a school. And I would say that is true throughout all aspects of society. You know, you used to go to the doctor, you were told you have cancer, I'm sorry. And, you know, you didn't question. And now people are on the internet figuring out their own stuff. So I think the idea of being assigned was slowly losing favor. And then obviously it was a shot in the arm, the COVID, the shutdown of the schools. And then people were really mad. I mean, I, I assume this happened with you as well. Like people who selected and bought houses in what, the best school districts, and they were mad that they closed or they were mad that their kids had to have a vaccination or they were mad that the kids had to wear masks, or they did not like the quarantine policy, or they did not like the plexiglass boxes, whatever it was, they're like, I chose this school and I don't like it. It's like, yeah, that's how people have been feeling in some of our worst school districts. And and that's what it feels like to be assigned to a school that doesn't work for you. So it's a much broader issue now. And, you know, EdChoice does the monthly polling And I think it's so interesting that the one thing that I think is interesting, and I know this is you worked on this a lot, is the percentage of parents who want their kids home a couple of days. They don't want them home every day. They don't want them gone every day, but they kind of want them home a couple of days. And we don't have a school system built for that. That is not the design of our system. A lot of parents are starting their own schools, right? I did a podcast on micro schools. We have all these new versions coming out, hybrid homeschooling, like what you've talked about a lot. And I think what we're finding is like parents should want more choices and not fewer. So this idea that you're just going to look at your utility bill and go, oh, that's where my child goes to kindergarten, I guess, I think was losing favor. And now it's really lost favor. Also, at the same time, you've got this backlash against school boards. 
hard to get people to run for the school board now. You've got some parents, some vocal groups of parents getting very involved in curriculum fights and things like that. And it just seems very contentious and teachers unions are fighting against parents and who's in control of school and who owns the kids. And I think with all of that, there's an opportunity to sort of rethink this at the systematic level. Well, yeah, because you think the degree to which having that one district just pours gasoline on all of those fires, right? Like every one of those decisions, because they have to apply to everyone, um, everyone's learning the same curriculum. Everyone is sitting in a plexiglass box or everyone is like masked or everyone is unmasked or whatever, or the schools are open or the schools are closed. It wasn't like, oh, well, it'll be true for some people and not others. And people who are comfortable or are uncomfortable or think one thing, who think others. And so it just raises the stakes. And, and I think this is one of these things that's like, I think quite fairly, it raises the stakes. It's like, if that's your kid and that's the only school they can go to and you're worried that they're in danger or that you're worried that they're teaching, they're being taught something that's wrong or harmful, you get where it's like, oh yeah, people people get really fired up about this. But then, you know, there is that just sort of frustrating bit where it's like, well, you know, one way to channel that frustration <laughs> rather than continuing to bang your heads against one another is to try and look for off ramps. Like, how do we right. dial this down a bit? How do we find opportunities to go other places so we don't have to continue to have this, this really fierce, you know, arguments with one another? Yeah. And maybe, you know, I, I've heard some pushback on that. Like, don't let's let people leave. They should be working within the system. And what's really hard is you're already busy and it's hard enough to just, you know, I think when my youngest was in third grade, because the day was long and he had a teacher who really, really believes very strongly in homework, really believe, big believer in homework. And I was like, look, he's not going to do the homework because he just can't at the end of the day. And I'm not going to fight with them every day. And if he's outside, he's outside. He's not going to do the homework. That's hard as a parent to stand up and say, I appreciate that you're sending the homework home. He's not going to do the homework. To think that you're going to change things from within to get that school to be the way you need it to be for your kid who's there for five or six years. You know, parents are this kind of rolling interest group where you care a lot when your kids are in that system. They move on to college and you care a lot less. Maybe you get grandchildren and maybe you care again for a little bit. But it's not this, you know, hard and fast interest group that lasts forever, like the rotary or something. This is like you're kind of in there temporarily and it's hard to change a system like that quickly and you can try to work on school board elections and things like that. But why not open the system? I mean, why so much resistance to just saying, hey, let people go where they want? Why do we need to defend this institutional structure that might have run its course? So now one criticism of open enrollment that I hear, and I think it's probably a fair one, <laughs> is is the issue around transportation. Just like, yeah. well, you can attend any district that you want to, but if you can't get there, or, you know, districts can say, oh, yeah, sure, we'll take anybody. But we want maybe before we <laughs> debate the pros and cons of that, what is like the status of just the transportation policy of these programs that you looked at? Do most of them, do some of them, do any of them provide transportation for students? Like, how does it actually work? Yeah, a lot of them do provide transportation. For example, in Wisconsin, you can get direct funding. The parents can if you want to drive up to, I think, twelve or thirteen hundred dollars. Sometimes they will pick your child up the closest bus stop to your house that's inside the district. So as soon as you cross that district line, closest bus stop, you could drop them at the bus stop. Some cases they reimburse parents on a per mile basis. But 
one thing that I think is kind of interesting that I've been looking at is bus ridership has been around the 50% mark for quite a while, 50, 55%. It has declined. I don't know. That's of of public school students. About 50% of public school students ride the bus to school. Right. Okay. And if you think about it, high school students generally will try any other method possible before riding the bus, right? Like that's, it's not the 1950s. So a lot of parents drive their kids to school. So I was just kind of curious about this. Like we are talking a lot about transportation. We don't want that to be the tail wagging the dog when it often is like we can't have open enrollment because of buses. It's like, I think we're smart enough to figure it out, first of all. But also, is every kid riding the bus every day still? I don't think so. In Missouri, it's we're down to about 40% ridership. And we still have these 75 person yellow buses. Like, is that the right thing to do in 2023? Probably not. Arizona has a grant program through their A plus grant program where they gave money to people to come up with innovative ideas. And they, you know, districts have done things like small vans that have wireless and a homework tutor, right? So if you have to ride the bus for a long time, you get your homework done and there's a person on the bus that's not just a bus attendant keeping decorum, like keeping everyone from fighting, but actually helping with homework and wireless. You know, there are ways that we could get around this. If Uber Eats can bring me lunch, I think we can figure out a way to get kids where they need to be. But secondly, I don't have that much time on my hands, but it's going to sound like I do. I looked at all the rural high schools in Missouri and I mapped them on Google Maps, the 20 closest drive time and miles. Because the, you know, I've heard it said that they're too far apart for open enrollment to work. It's an hour. Well, the furthest one is about 30 miles with has another high school within about 30 miles, but over half of them have two high schools within 20 miles. Now in high school, 20 miles and in rural areas, 20 miles is 20 minutes, right? In in the middle of St. Louis, five miles might be 20 minutes, but in a rural area, 20 miles, 20 minutes. It's kind of up to you. If it's worth it for you, you know, you know this because you did this analysis. A third of our high schools don't offer calculus. If you would like to drive 20 miles to take calculus, fine. It's kind of up to you. And I think people would be willing and also Kids are spaced all over those districts so that you might actually be closer to a high school in a different district. But I think that we could be turning some attention to the transportation issue and finding solutions so that we don't let that be a roadblock because we have this old system of yellow buses with 75 kids on them and one bus driver and they go in the morning and they come back in the afternoon. You know, if we could work around that a little bit, I think we could find a solution. And what about the kids who want this hybrid mix. You know what I mean? Maybe we need need shuttles. I don't know. Maybe not every kid's going to school every day, but we can figure it out. Yeah. Full disclosure, podcast listeners, I was actually on the advisory board for that Arizona thing that gave out the money. So I oh, reviewed nice. I reviewed all of the applications for it and everything. And, and you're right. It's sort of like, there's all sorts of things like different Nonprofit organizations, cities, you know, cities could apply, nonprofits could apply, school districts could apply, charter networks could apply, all these private schools could apply, I think. And they all came up with totally different answers. And I actually learned, as an aside, I learned a lot about Arizona. Shout out to anybody from Arizona who's listening to this about just like the varying geography and topography of it and how some of their rural schools are in, you know, have unpaved roads. And when it rains, they wash out and they need like four by fours to get people around. So it was like, it was like super interesting. But again, you're right. It's like, yeah, a 75 seater yellow bus is going to get mired in the mud there. And in other places, it's like, no, we need shorter 
you know, little 15 passenger vans that can run constantly, or we need to integrate with yeah. our local municipality and we can figure out all of these things. But, but the long and the short of it is it's like, all of these are eminently answerable questions. Absolutely. Like, you can figure this out. People. Like it's, <laughs> That's like, right. we, we're smart people and we have like, there's like this incredible amount of resources and other, like not just money, but like physical resource, like all these buses and all these cars and all these things, like there's enough of them out there to, to figure it out. But, but you're right. Yeah. One of these interesting challenges is just trying to get drivers. You know, if you want to have that 75 yeah. person school bus and they have to work this weird schedule where they like work in the morning and then they have a break and then they work in the afternoons and so it's like, yeah, so that compounds the problem. It's like, well, we might need to f- figure out something else. But anyway, that's a diversion. Probably the last question I'll ask you is sort of forward looking. As someone who's been looking at the past and present of this, thinking about open enrollment in the next year, five years, 10 years, what do you see as the future for it? Do you think it's going to grow? Do you think it's going to be less popular? Do you think you know charter schooling and private school choice are going to supplant it? What do you see the future? I think it's going to grow. I mean, you've got a hand, you know, half the states that haven't really implemented a strong policy. I think that it is an attraction for families and, you know, overall nationally, K-12 enrollment's declining. We had a little bubble, a little baby bubble. It's moved through. There are fewer K-12 students in the United States today than there were 10 years ago, and we're heading towards even fewer still. And then you have some states, I keep using Missouri because that's where I work, but declining enrollment, we're supposed to lose another 10% of our enrollment. So if you want a state that's attracting families, you're going to need to offer families what they want. And what families want is for each of their children to be able to stop and consider which kindergarten is the kindergarten they want them to go to. Do they want a Montessori or an outdoor school or, you know, back to basics, whatever it is. That's what families want. And the states that sit on the sideline and refuse to open up their district lines are going to be the states that are going to just lose families faster. They're not going to be very attractive. And you have these people theoretically, who can move around and work remotely or could until it seems to be dying right now, but, you know, could move around and work remotely. You want to be attractive to those families. And again, like I said, you've got second generation parents now who are part of school choice. And no one I know wants fewer choices than they used to have, right? I don't think we're going to go backwards. So I think it's going to go. I don't think it's going to supplant charter schools. Unless we completely open up the system to a whole like portfolio approach or just a pluralist system of schools where you can have public private charter, no one really cares. Parents don't normally care what the governance structure is, right? Then you can just pick any one of them. I think that that is, like I said, four states have done it. Several other states are considering it this year. And those are going to be the states that attract families. So I can only imagine that we'll only grow. Well, wonderful place to end it. Susan, thank you so Great. much for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. As you can probably tell, I've known Susan for a very long time, and I always really enjoy speaking with her. And it's fun to just record it sometimes. We could have talked for much longer and uh, about the various topics that were in there. But I wanted to sort of stick to the paper because she's a very interesting person. She has lots of interesting thoughts on a bunch of different areas. But it was like, well, this is the paper that's coming out. And so this is what we're going to talk about. But hopefully we'll have Susan back on the podcast for a more wide ranging interview about some of her other thoughts on education policy. But please check out the paper. Again, it's called Breaking Down Public School District Lines, Policies, Perceptions and Implications for Interdistrict Open Enrollment. It's available on the EdChoice website, www.edchoice.org. As always, follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. 
We have TikTok. TikTok is still, we're still cranking those things out. Mostly the youths um, <laughs> it's affiliated with us. They're much more native to that. I'm sort of clunky in my TikToking, but I give it the old college try. But check us out on TikTok as well if you're on there. We try and put out some fun content. And I really appreciate you all listening. Check out the paper. Listen to us again in the future because I look forward to joining all of you on another edition of Ed Choice Chats.